Hello and welcome to the 1950s. We have left the dark 1940s behind and we are now entering a time of well, significant hopefulness. I mean, you know, I, we're going to go over some of the not so hopeful parts um, in this lecture. But the 1950s are, well, it's not war anymore and the world is changing. There are significant innovations that are part of the 1950s, mainframe computing to start. Um, but um, some of the things that really led to you know, World War I and World War II seem to have been essentially, well, if not eradicated, don't exist anymore. The, the big empires, the European empires were destroyed by World War I. And World War II, the end of World War II pretty much sort of rings the death knell for European colonialism in Africa. And that's really what I'd like to, us to talk about for the next couple of minutes. What happens in the 1950s is that Europe really realizes that it can't continue, or European countries that have colonies in Africa realize that it, it just, it really can't um, continue to essentially plunder this continent that is not, does not belong to it. I mean, in the aftermath of a war that many consider to have been a war against evil, right? A war against an, an inhumane actor that eradicated, you know, the large prop proportion of, of a population. Colonialism, what European countries were doing, European companies were doing in Africa, just didn't seem like, it just didn't, pass the smell test anymore. And at the same time, Africans themselves, African citizens themselves, were had sort of found their voice in pushing back against this European power. So let's review first which European powers still had colonies in Africa. Great Britain still controlled huge areas of Nigeria, Gambia, Sierra Leone, and white Britons had settled in Kenya and Southern Africa. France ruled huge, a huge area north and of, of North and West Africa, and many French citizens were living as French citizens in Algeria. Portugal had long settled Angola and Mozambique in the 16th century, and they were still there. Uh, Belgium had control over the area along the Congo River, and this had been King Leopold's own property, like he had claimed it for himself in the 19th century, and in 1908, the Belgian government bought it, but essentially to the same ends. Uh, Italy still occupied parts of Ethiopia and Somaliland, and um, the territories that Germany had colonized um, before World War One, Togo, Cameroon, Southwest Africa, and Tanganyika, were being now controlled by Great Britain and France. So that ended over the course of the 50s and 60s, and a large part of that had to do with the fact that African colonial subjects were, had been educated in the same way that public education in Europe and in the United States was developed because the economy needed educated workers. Because if you're going to run trains and you're going to have factories, you really need your workers to be able to read a train schedule or a factory manual. And so the same thing was happening throughout Africa, which the people who worked there needed to be trained, needed to have education to be able to function in the context of the colonial economy. And what happens when you educate someone is that you can't just educate them and say, well, I'm, I'm going to teach you to read so you can you know, read the Bible and read the train schedule. That doesn't work that way. And 
you know, people were not just being taught to be train operators. There were significant sort of exchanges of students and many African elites sent their children to study in European universities. They were, it, it, it was possible. And um, Africans who traveled and who read were exposed to the idea of nationalism, which is the notion that nations should rule themselves. And they were also hearing about the concept of socialism, which largely framed the economic world order as one in which rich or extremely powerful people and companies and nations exploit the poor for their own advancement. And so when you combine these notions of nationalism and socialism in a colonial context, what it really led to was the sort of awareness amongst young Africans that, um, that if all African people united, they might be able to end colonialism and end white colonial rule. And that's what we call pan-Africanism, this notion that all of Africa together could end a system of power that had lasted for centuries. And so what we see in the 1950s is the beginning of an explicit discourse around the liberation of Africa from European control. And this discourse is happening in Africa, but it's also happening in Europe, right? So this is not, there were moments of great antagonism, but essentially this, this, this divestment of power starts being talked about across the world in the 1950s. And over the course of the 50s and the 60s, African countries indeed became independent. Now, there is one minor issue that will become a major issue, which is that one of the things that um, leaders of the independence in Africa needed to decide was what, I mean, it wasn't one big continent. It wouldn't become, the continent wouldn't become one country, right? So there were going to be a series of different nations in Africa, and they were largely defined by the borders that had been established by the European colonists. But there's a problem because those borders included very often tribal boundaries. They crossed tribal boundaries and they included people within them that had very little in common with them, each other culturally and linguistically, except for the fact that they were colonial subjects. So once they were no longer colonial subjects, what would they have in common? Some colonies also contained rival religious groups. And so they not didn't necessarily, apart from being colonial subjects, they didn't, they spoke different languages, they had different religions, they had different cultures, and they thought differently about who, you know, what tribe, what nation they belonged to. And um, this would become a problem, but nationalist leaders decided that they were going to keep the existing colonial borders because it was more practical. And, and you know, that turned out to be true, but really only in the short term. But I want you to keep in mind this, this sort of potential for future conflict as we observe the development of international affairs in other parts of the world, where both the threat of nuclear war and this breakdown of the world at these two camps, with the U.S. on one side and the, US, the USSR on the other. Okay. Now... We're going to focus a little bit more on the U.S. experience here, largely because it's perhaps a little bit more um, relevant to our purposes right now. And, um, and look at the, the case of Iran in the early 1950s, which really allowed the United States to recognize the amazing amount of power they had in this new world order. Remember, the United States, before World War II, had largely decided did not want to be involved 
in world affairs. It wasn't going to involve itself in other people's wars or other people's affairs. It, it wasn't interested in that. And so now we're in the post-World War world, and the United States is getting a taste for what it means to be a world power. So the Iranian oil industry had been under British control since 1913. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which would eventually become British Petroleum, and you might have seen it as BP, so still in existence, um, was, you know, essentially operated all the oil fields and extracted oil, and it did not, you know, it, it, it extracted it for itself. It did not pay Iran any fees for this benefit. And in 1953, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was the democratic elected to prime minister of Iran. Iran had a king, as you call you would call him a shah, so he was the prime minister. He introduced a range of progressive reforms. Um, so he actually did that before 1953. Um, he introduced social security and he had planned land reforms. And amongst um, the land reforms was going to be the nationalization of the Iranian oil industry. Because in order to fund social security, what Iran was going to need was a significant amount of money. And the way they were going to be able to do that is if they, if they soil, sold Iranian oil and kept those profits. And so what Mossadegh was doing was not different from what the Mexican president, uh, Lázaro Cárdenas, had done in 1938, before World War II before the world broke up into these two camps. So Mossadegh was nationalizing his country's most valuable resource in order to reinvest it in the Iranian economy and infrastructure and public goods. Mossadegh was a secular Democrat. So he was not religious and he was a Democrat. He was democratically elected and he believed in democratic institutions. Who, after decades of foreign involvement in his country, in this case it was the British, really mobilized against foreign domination. But he did it in a democratic way. So, you know, if you're going to stop colonizing countries, and if you understand that the days of plundering other countries for your benefit are over, maybe you could also understand why Iran might have wanted British petroleum out of its oil fields, right? Except the British government just couldn't see it this way. All they saw was that they were going to lose control of the Iranian oil industry. And they were completely unwilling to negotiate. They, they were just not, you know, there was no, listen, we'll buy it off you. We'll, you know, we'll pay. It, they, they just didn't want to hear anything. Just they, they were not going to negotiate. And in fact, the American Secretary, Secretary of State in, in the very early 1950s, Dean Aikson, said that the British were in fact destructive and determined on a rule or ruin policy in Iran. So, you know, at that time, the U.S. was still sort of, you know, a little bit doubtful about whether the British were right in taking this position. But then, late in 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower is elected president in the U.S. Change uh, of tactics. And in late November, December, British intelligence officials start talking to American intelligence and they suggest that Mossadegh really should be ousted. Um, Winston Churchill, yes, the, that very one, in fact suggests to Eisenhower that Mossadegh, despite being very explicit about not being a socialist, being disgusted with socialism, Churchill suggests to Eisenhower, well, you know, he could potentially become dependent on the pro-Soviet party, a, a pro-Soviet party in, in Iran. And if that were the case, then... Iran would increasingly turn towards communism, and essentially that's the same as being communist, and then they would become part of the Soviet sphere, 
And essentially, that would mean that the Soviets would have control over the Iranian oil fields. It's a long shot. It requires a lot of um, sort of paranoid assumptions about um, Iranian politics, as well as the strength of the pro-Soviet party in Iran. But it really didn't help that the Shah of Iran, essentially the king of Iran, didn't like Mossadegh too much either, because the Shah was worried that Mossadegh might in fact some point, you know, sort of also mobilized to an end of the monarchy. And so that really helped the CIA and MI6, which is the British Secret Service, support a small opposition. So there was a small opposition to Mossadegh, which was largely, you know, sort of people who were dependent on the Shah or who were part of the aristocracy. They supported the small opposition that grew into a full-fledged political coup. And that coup removed Mossadegh from power on August 19th, 1953. And with the support of the CIA and MI6, they replaced Mossadegh with a military general. And for the next 25 years, the Shah ruled with significant support from the United States. And that, at some point, would become the reason why there was this enormous anti-US backlash and a religious revolution in Iran in the late 1970s. But the, the effect of the Iran overthrow of 1953 would have long-lasting effects throughout the world, and, and the first of those would be in Guatemala in 1954. Before World War II, Guatemala's economy depended almost entirely on exporting fruit through the U.S. <coughs> Sorry about that. It was a, a United Fruit Company, which was American, and in 1951, the new president, Juan Jacobo Arbenz, just think of him as Arbenz, announced that the government would take over all unused land. So it wasn't going to take the lands that were currently planted. You know, the United Fruit Company grew bananas, right? It wasn't going to take the land on which banana trees grew, but just the land that wasn't being used and was going to give it to poor peasants in order to fight poverty. Now, that unused land also belonged to the United Fruit Company, and the idea that land would be confiscated or nationalized sounded a bit like what Mossadegh was doing in Iran. And so, <coughs> in the early 50s, John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State um, under Eisenhower, right? So this is, we're talking 1952. And his brother, Alan Dulles, was the director of the CIA. So he had these two brothers who, one was um, Secretary of State, the other one was director of the CIA. They're both, like, complete anti-communists, which, again, you know, was not rare in America at the time. But apart from that, um, Alan Dulles was also a member of the board of the United Fruit Company. So early in the 1950s, so 1952, Eisenhower and his cabinet are getting, sort of are hearing that you know, land reform and nationalization might be a sign of socialism, which could lead to communism, and they start an overthrow in Iran. And so fresh off this experience in Iran, which was not just, in a sense, had solidified this connection between land reform, nationalization, and communism, but also given them the experience that they could actually overthrow a government that they considered to not be aligned with their interests. The Dulles brothers become convinced that Arbenz would become a communist. And so what they do is they, they go all out and they organize a covert support for a coup against him. And there was barely any opposition to Arbenz, right? In Iran, there was some opposition to Mossadegh, whether it was legitimate or not is for discussion, but there was barely any opposition to Arbenz. 
And yet the CIA manages to sort of do a series of black flag operations and they start a coup against him and Arbenz was removed from office in 1954. After which a president who was much, much more friendly to the United States was installed and all the confiscated lands were returned to the United Fruit Company. So uh, what were the lessons here? The lessons of the 1950s in this context? Well, any kind of government policy that stood to cost American companies or the United States a risk would most likely be identified as communist and would then be overthrown by covert U.S.-led or U.S.-supported forces. And the governments, the other lesson, the governments that followed after the coup knew that as long as they seemed to be protecting the country from communism, as long as they seemed to support the United States, the United States would support them. So, you know, imagine you're the president of country X and you have an enemy. All you need to do is brand him a communist and the United States would more than lend you support to get rid of that person. And if the press, if the press in your country doesn't cover your actions in a positive light, well, you can just attack them as communist mouthpieces and the U.S. would send support to, you know, either stop them talking or shout an opposing message louder. Ultimately, the message in these early years of the Cold War was either you are with us or you're against us. Yeah, and in Latin America, it would really be difficult to remain neutral. And that's the, you know, that's that's really what the Guatemalan lesson showed. We've got one more chapter in Latin America that makes that particularly relevant. And it was a chapter that really was important to the rest of the world. Cuba in the 1950s was basically, early 1950s, was basically an extension of the United States. Under the terms of the Platt Amendment, the U.S. had the right to intervene in Cuba's internal affairs whenever it wanted to. And it kept kept a large naval base in Guantanamo Bay. Cuba's economy served America's needs largely, and Americans really got used to hopping to Havana for a weekend of tropical fun. And there are a ton of movies from the 1950s that really make that explicit. Cuba's middle class benefited enormously from this relationship, right? I mean, there were casinos in, in, in Cuba, and I mean, tourism was, was a, a huge, huge source of income for the island. But there wasn't a lot of money that was trickling down to poorer Cubans. And General Batista, he'd seized power in 1952, around the time Eisenhower became president, um, was slightly more, like, he was, you know, he was authoritarian. Um, I mean, he was just, I'd say, slightly to the left, I guess, of um, Benito Mussolini. He was very much inspired by populist authoritarians like Juan Perón in Argentina, who were you know, so who controlled power very centrally and then handed it out by favors depending on who they needed to impress and who they needed to have on their side. Um, this rise in authoritarianism was, was new in Cuba and it was deeply opposed by Fidel Castro and, and younger law students who started a resistance movement. But the, the resistance movement um, was not just against Batista. It was against Batista and his authoritarian rule and largely also, and this is a theme, right, against foreign intervention, foreign in immersion in a nation's economy. So what Fidel Castro wanted was both a return of Cuba to Cuba, right? The Cuban economy should be Cuban, and a democratic government. Now, the resistance movement to Batista did not just have Cubans in it. Among the Cuban resistance was a young Argentinian who had also been in Guatemala in 1954 when Arbenz had been overthrown. Yeah, 
And this young man, whom everyone called Che, was key was a key element in the transformation of Cuba. This is Che Guevara. So Che Guevara had been in, in, in Guatemala in 1954. He, he saw the overthrow. He left Guatemala in 1954, ended up in Mexico City, where he met Fidel, who had been exiled out of Cuba because of a failed coup against Batista. And, um, and together they would form a pretty powerful um, group, and they eventually managed to overthrow Batista in 1959. So they overthrew a corrupt ruler, like many African independent leaders, and, and like many Africans, and you know, like Iran, they just wanted Cuba to govern itself. They wanted the Cuban economy to be owned by Cubans and to be allowed to invest in Cuba. Fidel Castro was not a communist when he resisted Batista. Like Mossadegh, he, he might not have trusted the foreign companies that exploited his country, but he, he wasn't opposed to the notion of economic growth, and he wasn't opposed to the notion of working with them. But Eisenhower would have absolutely none of it. To him, Castro was a communist, just like Mossadegh had been a communist and just like Arbenz had been a communist, right? They weren't, but to Eisenhower, the justification for their actions against them was because, well, they weren't quite aligned with the United States enough, therefore they must be communists. Remember, you're either with us or you're against us. And the goal of U.S. policy in the 1950s would be to crush anybody who wasn't aligned with the United States. And in this case, that mean would mean to crush Che Guevara. And in fact, they tried to kill Che Guevara, not, I'm sorry, not Che Guevara, Fidel Castro. They tried to kill Fidel Castro any way possible. So, exploding cigars, check, they tried those. Poison cigars, tried those as well. Poison socks, yep, they tried it, didn't work. They even tried to put poison lipstick on a woman sent to seduce him. I mean, this is like straight out of a Bond movie, and that didn't work either. And it, in fact, there's sort of a, a completely apocryphal calculation that the CIA came up with 638 different plots to assassinate Castro, none of which worked. He died in 2016. And um, I'm going to leave you. This is, this is you know, not in a, in, a, in a world that is dominated by two extremely powerful nuclear sort of empires, to call them that, one man <laughs> managed to avoid being killed by one of those two powers. And so um, I'm going to leave you with that. Castro lives. <laughs>